3: As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more.
1: Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking.
4: Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says don't want to argue, I don't want to debate, don't want to hear about what kind of food you hate. I'm Jonathan Strickland.
3: I'm Joe McCormick and our other host Lauren Vogelbaum is not with us today. She's having a horrible dystopian allergy experience.
4: Yeah, we should do one about the future of allergies. Actually, that's not a bad idea. I was just going to kid about that, but that's actually a pretty interesting topic.
3: We'll put it on the list.
4: Yeah, and uh, we'll make sure that she's, you know... Got t- plenty of any histamines in her system before right. we record that one, uh, but not so many that she's asleep because the- there's no point really. But today we wanted to talk about something that is a pretty cool topic: the idea of one of the big challenges in space travel. You knew it was going to come to space travel because here at Forward Thinking, space travel is one of those things we're absolutely obsessed with, you know. So, but Joe, why don't you paint me a picture with your words and tell me. What you think of as some of the biggest challenges in space travel?
3: Well, let's see. First of all, I'd have to say space pirates. That's a big one. You know, that's Second, a given. I'd have to say the fact that space smells really bad.
4: Dude, in space, no one can smell you?
3: Third, though, I'd say there are tremendous costs to getting the stuff we need in space up yes. there. yeah. Yeah. You might be wondering, like, um, why don't we have all of those Star Trek space stations going all around the Earth and colonies on the moon and Mars? And there are several explanations, but one of the most basic is just it's really expensive.
4: Yeah, it costs huge amounts of money to have a space launch. And, uh, you know, we've talked about it in the past before we've given kind of the round number, the one that everybody quotes, which is...
3: $10,000 per pound, well, right? You
4: know, it's more expensive than that really good cut of meat that you can find at your grocers. Um, yeah, $10,000 a pound is a huge amount of money. But It's then, about
3: on par with unicorn meat. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Or, uh, or sadder meat. I was about to
4: say, Think Geek sells unicorn meat for much less than that. But uh it comes in a can, like spam. But ten thousand dollars per pound so we we thought for a moment we thought well why we should look into this because we have quoted this figure many many times ourselves
3: right well it's not necessarily uh, wrong but it's not a specific number either it's sort of a rough historical estimate
4: right and uh, and beyond that it's it's very vague because this is $10,000 to get stuff into space but where into space
3: right that's a good question so basically if you look back in the history of us taking stuff from the surface of the earth up to orbit mm-hmm. or beyond it's been about $10,000 per pound on average if you if you average together the stuff that costs more and the stuff that costs less Well, what influences those? One of those is the kind of rocket we use. Sure. And we can talk about that in a second. But, of course, another one is simply where you're taking the stuff. Right. Uh, So going to a low-Earth orbit destination like the International Space Station is going to be cheaper than, say, taking a satellite way out to geostationary orbit where it stays at the same line of longitude and revolves around the Earth in synchronization.
4: Right. And also it would matter about whether or not the – spacecraft you're sending up is expected to come back. Yeah. Because then, you know, you need Obviously, to Obviously, have... if
3: it has crew, that's right. going to be...
4: <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, you want them eventually to come back. And so you need to factor in the amount of fuel that's going to be necessary to make the return trip.
3: And that's just talking about orbit, of course. Yeah. Now, once you're talking about going to another planet or to a moon, then you add in a whole other layer of complexity because then you're talking about landing vehicles... And hopefully, if it's a crewed mission, you're talking about relaunching off right. of this. I mean, adding more and more layers of complexity and more and more support requirements. Which right. We can talk about the support mass that's required on these missions in a bit. But the other thing is what rocket you're using. So on on the low end so far, we have something like SpaceX's Falcon 9.
4: Right. And I should add that the... Fa- figures i've seen were actually uh priced per kilogram so per unit of mass as opposed to per unit of weight and then i did the conversion to uh cost per pound that way well but, what is
3: it jonathan give us the number
4: so for the falcon 9 the cost per pound and and was about $1867.73 so significantly less than $10,000 per pound but still well above uh you know what most of us be able to pay to send a pound of stuff up into space. Right. There's also the Atlas V, which would be closer to the higher end. That's closer to about six thousand dollars per pound. But all of this is rough estimation, and it's mostly estimated based on the cost of a launch compared to the cargo capacity of you know whatever device. Like how much mass can a rocket? propel up into orbit. Right. So it's it's taking all that into consideration. It's almost like looking at the pound for pound best fighter. You know, (laughs) you have to take all this stuff. And there are a lot of factors that may not be entering into this really rough estimation that could wildly change that amount.
3: Right. Well, one of the things that could wildly change it, of course, is creating much cheaper newer versions in the future which sure. people like elon musk have been predicting is going to happen for a while now uh, the the he said you know musk says the private spaceflight industry is going to be able to get prices much cheaper the first major milestone is going to be a, a launch cost of a thousand dollars per pound and musk predicted in an interview with npr in 2011 that the Falcon Heavy, which is the booster rocket that's the successor to the Falcon 9, yeah, they're it, working on it now. It's the
4: Falcon Heavy is like the Falcon 9. like I think it's something like three Falcon 9s grouped together. It's it's oh, ridiculous. Really? Yeah, it's yeah. it's enormous.
3: <laughs> I know it's big. I mean, we'll see if that achieves a $1,000 per pound. Mm. He, he predicted that uh, a couple years ago, but we don't know yet. Uh, it's scheduled for launch in 2015, so I guess we'll find out. And, uh, of course, in the same NPR interview, Musk acknowledged that even $1,000 per pound is still too expensive. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's so expensive. What we really need to do is get things under $100 per pound.
4: Yeah. And even then, we still have some limitations to take into consideration. Right,
3: because no matter how cheap you get it in terms of the dollars you spend, you still have physical
4: limitations. Exactly. You have a physical limitation of how much cargo a particular rocket can boost into orbit. And depending upon what your mission is, you may not be able to physically take with you, using a single rocket at any rate, the materials you need to carry out your mission. Let's say that your mission is to go to Mars and spend some time there and come back. Now, because the way the Martian orbit and the Earth orbit are, There's really a a very limited window of when you want to launch to Mars in order to spend the least amount of fuel to get there. And then once you're at Mars, you have to wait for a long time for that situation to come back round for you to be able to get back to Earth under the same conditions. Right. Otherwise, you have to have even more fuel because the distance between Earth and Mars will be greater, right? Because they don't orbit the sun at the same rate.
3: Yeah. I mean, there's no point in launching at a time when you're not going to be able to make the shortest route to earth
4: right yeah you wouldn't want to launch off of mars and say well here's the problem. By the time we get to Earth, we it will effectively be on the other side of the sun from where we are now. So we're going to need five times the amount of fuel we would need right. or, or more, really. I was just throwing five times in there out of random. But, right.
3: So there are basically mass constraints on top yeah. of the dollar constraints. Right. And one of those is that in the, the paper we're going to talk about in this episode points this out. So you'll hear about that in a second. But Uh, They say for every unit mass of payload launched into space, the mission as a whole requires 99 units of support. So for every pound of payload, the stuff you're taking, we require 99 pounds of food, water, oxygen, fuel,
4: yeah, and it gets even more complicated, right? Because when you're talking about fuel, right. like you can't just add fuel into the the mixture and say, right. oh, now add- we've got seven.
3: Adding fuel increases your weight, right. so you need to add more fuel. <laughs> yeah,
4: you have to find the right balance point where the fuel you have is going to be sufficient to get that weight out into space. It's
3: kind of like, why doesn't my car have a 65,000-gallon gas tank?
4: Yeah, because yeah, by that time, your car would be so heavy as to not be able to move. <laughs> Um, I mean you yeah, you never need to refill it because it would never consume enough fuel. (laughs) You'd never get anywhere. Uh your battery would die first. But then we look at things like permanent colonies, which have their own issues, right? Even if you if you figured out the amounts you need to get people to where they're going. Let's say you know you're going to establish a Martian colony, obviously you can't expect to have everything you ever will ever need on board that same rocket. It's just not That spacecraft is not going to have the cargo capacity necessary to carry a lifetime supply of everything, unless you're being cynical. If your cargo
3: requirements are effectively infinity, then you can't do that. Right.
4: If if you're going to be a cynical, cold-hearted person and say, well, technically there is a lifetime supply on there (laughs) because after the supply runs out, so will the lifetime. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about being able to perpetuate a colony, be able to keep it going. So clearly – uh, you can't just expect to be able to carry everything with you, nor in the case of something like Mars, can you expect to get regular resupplies from Earth because it takes months for a ship to get from Earth to Mars. And that's under ideal conditions. That's when we're talking about Earth and Mars being lined up so that you are spending the least amount of effort to get out there. Then even then you're, you're talking about, uh, an, like an eight month trip. And then a more than a year before it comes around again. So that's not really a viable option either to say like, oh, we'll just send uh, supplies from earth to Mars indefinitely in order to keep them going. So that's one of the reasons why we talked about the big challenges that the Mars One colony faces if they want to really be successful.
3: So here's where we get to the point of the episode. Mm -hmm. What if we could create a way where a low mass initial investment in a space mission's cargo could create a self-replenishing system for the things we need in order to colonize other planets or survive in a long space journey.
4: Right. So in other words, what if we could bring something with us that could continue to manufacture the basic things we're going to need, either on the journey there or if it's a Uh, If it's a mission like the one we mentioned about Mars where you land on the planet, you are actually able to make the stuff that you need in order for that mission to be a success and for everyone to survive and to get back to Earth safely.
3: Yeah, and this is where synthetic biology comes in. Yeah,
4: this is really an interesting uh, idea. Synthetic biology is defined as the design and construction of new biological parts, devices, and systems and the redesign of existing natural biological systems for useful purposes.
3: So it's sort of like engineering with life.
4: Yeah, it's saying, look at these various organisms, usually microorganisms in the case of synthetic biology. Look at these microorganisms that have remarkable capabilities and qualities and can survive in various environments and produce things that, with a little tinkering, can come become useful stuff for us. What if... Part of our payload in that initial launch uh, happens to be some of these microorganisms that we put to use, especially once we get to a place like Mars. And can we realistically create, you know, the, the basic things we're going to need using those microorganisms, converting the stuff that's already there?
3: Yeah, the idea here is going to space and taking along a factory that fits in a Petri dish. Yeah. Uh, but... Space, of course, we should say at the outset, is not the only place that synthetic biology is going to be applied.
4: No, there's actually an MIT synthetic biology working group. Have you actually looked at this no, website? I uh, the website's it's it's kind of cute. It's a website that includes areas of interest for the field. So, the at MIT, you have a working group that meets and brainstorms about potential uses for synthetic biology, and they dream big. <laughs> <laughs> and my favorite, uh, like they, they have areas if it's like- It's an MIT lab. I yeah. Know. We yeah. expect big things from them. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, wh- why dream small? Aim for the stars. If you don't make it, you're still gonna come up with something amazing.
3: Aim for the stars with your bacteria.
4: Yeah. So their, their, uh, uh, applications include things like fabrication, computation, and signal processing, uh, materials processing, energy management, mechanics, and replication. But it also create, creates some, uh, Interesting, more science fiction-y like applications that would have fit in with our, our X-Men uh, episodes in a way. Like the idea of creating humans that can photosynthesize. What So that humans would be able to get some energy through a photosynthetic chemical process similar to what you find in plants. Uh, this was not. It wasn't um, gone into detail. It was like literally <laughs> it was listed on the website. And I thought, I want to read that paper. They're, they're just trying no to it.
3: see if you're actually paying attention. Maybe.
4: That could very well be the, the point of it. But – The idea is that this biology would allow us to harness these processes that organisms carry out, or we could change the organisms to do something that we specifically need them to do, either genetically or or through selective breeding or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, and then use those to our advantage. So a really simple example that I was thinking of is a genetic alteration to a silkworm so that the silk produced is stronger and more resilient. So that you could use that silk th- to then make other stuff that would be useful for you. That's just a like a, a example pulled out of thin air.
3: Yeah, I feel like we've talked about some other examples of this kind of thing on the show before. Like when we talked about microbial computing mm-hmm. and about uh, creating microbial machines yep. that would move tiny components in, in machines that like uh, you can get microbes to spin a tiny gear. Right. Uh, and if you would be changing the nature of these microbial life forms in order to do useful work for you, that seems like that would fit under synthetic biology.
4: Right. Yeah. In this case, the work we're mostly talking about tends to be chemical in nature as opposed yeah. to mechanical.
3: Well, obviously, that yeah. that's probably easier to do, I'd guess.
4: I, I imagine so. I mean, just getting those microorganisms to be consistent with hitting those punch cards in and out whenever they're checking in for the beginning of the day and they're checking out at the end of the day. That alone is a nightmare.
3: They're also always just walking in front of the robot. They get yeah. beaten down every time.
4: Yeah. So let's talk about this paper you found that really became the the linchpin for all of the research that we've done for this topic. It's actually an incredible paper, and, yeah. it's, and it's completely available to read Yeah, online. you can
3: read the full text for free. So... Uh, so it was just last week I think it was in 2014 it was a group of authors associated with UC Berkeley and with NASA mm-hmm. uh, two and two each and they published a paper called Towards Synthetic Biological Approaches to Resource Utilization on Space Missions and this was in The Journal of the Royal Society Interface and of course interface here sort of refers to the interface between different natural and applied sciences
1: mm-hmm.
3: And so the authors, which were Menezes, Cumbers, Hogan, and Arkin, claimed that if you're going to explore or colonize the moon or Mars, it makes good sense to develop systems of biological production. To use live organisms to transform things like available volatiles and waste products into usable resources to keep the crew members alive and able to do their work on the mission.
4: Right. And ideally, you would want to have organisms that could harness whatever resources are going to be available on the site you're going to. So Mars, for example, uh, which would include things like carbon dioxide and nitrogen, which are found on Mars. Also, ideally, the outputs of those organisms will fall into a useful category of material Uh, or as an intermediate feedstock that some other microorganism will consume to produce the useful material. In other words, they actually talk about... You know, you could create a system where you have these microorganisms that take some sort of raw material that are, that, that you find on Mars. They convert it into a different type of material. You have a second group of microorganisms that consume that new material. They produce a third type of material and so on and so forth until you finally get to where you want to be. Now they stress that, of course, you want to have as few intermediates in that relationship as possible Mm -hmm. because you want it to be more simple. Uh, The added complexity just means you have added payload because you have to bring more stuff with you in order to process the different materials.
3: Oh, yeah, it makes sense. You want to streamline your chemical assembly line.
4: Right. And you want to try and make it effective across multiple outputs. And we'll talk about the outputs in a little bit because there are they identified four big ones. Yeah. And, And you want those processes to apply to as many of those as possible. So that way, again, you are simplifying your, your efforts as much as you can.
3: Yeah. So in the simplest possible terms, you're looking for a way to create a collection of organisms that sort of eat Martian soil and poop things that are really useful.
4: That's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. The That's, most
3: useful poop in the universe. It,
4: it, well, at least for as far as we're concerned. I mean, we haven't run into like... Uh, what's the what's the little uh, nibbler on Futurama that, that poops dark matter that fuels right. uh, spaceships? We haven't run into that yet. So barring running into nibbler, then yes, so far this is the most useful stuff.
3: Okay. And so probably we should be fair and say maybe not pooping in the way you and I imagine, but at least oh, creating a byproduct. <laughs> please
4: don't imagine the pooping. <laughs> now you can't help but well, imagine what are the, the pooping. What are
3: the, the- – Pooping, non pooping byproducts that these powerful little machines could create. Well, one of the first ones we should mention are drugs and medicine.
4: Yeah. Yeah. There are, uh, in fact, there are a lot of drugs that we synthesize through uh, using different types of uh, microorganisms, bacteria, fungi, all sorts of stuff that we depend upon from the natural world in order to produce drugs. Uh You know, even if we're talking about starting off with something and then creating a purely synthetic version, we often look at nature as the first source. So, you know, you hear about like um natural cures and folk wisdom. A lot of the drugs we use really are the refined, scientifically arrived at versions of stuff that has been used in folk cures for quite some time oh
3: sure like we have you know uh chemically isolated the active ingredient in some piece of tree bark that acted as a pain reliever right and now you've got just just that main chemical that was actually doing the work concentrated in a pill form
4: right in a very predictable and uh, measurable way
3: right but now that i bring up the pill form i do kind of wonder well wait a second Why would you need to synthesize medicine in space? Because medicine doesn't really take up that much room or mass. It's not a significant amount of your payload. And it turns out there is a good reason you'd need to synthesize medicine in space.
4: Yeah. This was interesting. I did not know this until we looked at this paper that – medications you know there are expiration dates for medications that tell you when the active ingredient is no longer going to be as efficacious as it should be
3: i always just assume that's a lie but maybe that
4: not at all apparently it is not a lie and apparently not only is it not a lie it happens faster in space <laughs> so drugs go go bad they 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 lose their efficacy they they become less effective over time Let and in guess. space it happens faster
3: it's the old radiation isn't it
4: you know, uh, I think it's really the microgravity. They just start partying and then they're tired. It's... Oh no, I'm thinking of the astronauts. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I think it's, it's a cool idea to bring along microorganisms so that you can continue to create drugs instead of having to rely upon whatever stores you brought with you.
3: Right. So once you get to Mars, apparently it is. Not all that difficult to create a system where you could have microbes manufacturing, for example, acetaminophen, which yeah. is the, you know, a painkiller.
4: Right. And there are other drugs that they might be able to make, too, like antibiotics, which obviously that'd be really useful right. uh, in, in small amounts. I mean, if you want to if you don't run into the Mars flu every five seconds, that'd, that'd be good, too.
3: Well, I mean, I guess we would hope that whatever cold you catch on Mars is something we brought with us and not I, the Martian super virus. I, I'd, I'd
4: be pretty pretty sure that it would be something we brought with us we haven't detected anything on mars that would lead us to believe there are pathogens already there but uh yes you know you would want to be able to make this kind of stuff especially if you know again the the useful uh lifespan of it would be effective uh, or really drastically uh shortened by space travel.
3: Okay, well, let's go from a tiny part of the payload to the big kahuna.
4: Okay. Fuel. Yeah, this is the big one, right? So according to that Royal Society paper, about two-thirds of the entire mass of a rocket bound for Mars and destined to return to Earth would be fuel. So the more stuff you want to bring with you, the more fuel you need. And again, like we said, it's not that simple ratio. The more fuel you need, the more fuel you're going to need to move that fuel. And you have to find just the right balance there. Uh, now, the paper says that if we could make fuel on Mars, we could cut that down, uh, cut down on the amount we need by a factor of two to three, which is significant. Yeah. And, uh, further, the paper goes on to say, okay, look, there are lots of different types of rocket fuel out there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are really chemically quite complex. And to make them requires a long production, uh, uh, process that you cannot realistically Find a way of of uh, matching using s- synthetic biology. It's just not in the cards. However, there is one type of fuel that you could create uh, that we could do it right now with synthetic biology, which would be uh, a methane oxygen fuel. Oh, so me- liquid methane is something that we could produce um, using microorganisms and the basic stuff that you would find on Mars maybe bringing some stuff along with us in order to do it. Because, yeah, you can use hydrogen and carbon dioxide to make methane oxygen fuel. Uh, and it relies on stuff like acetogens, which are microorganisms that create acetate as a product of respiration. And other microorganisms can convert the acetate into nitrogen compounds. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, we have uh, acetogens really close by us Often. Oh.
3: <laughs> Did you see that?
4: They, they include some of the microflora found in human feces. Yeah. That's pleasant. Uh, then you also have methanogens, which can convert hydrogen and carbon dioxide into methane. Boom. So that, yeah, exactly. You gotta be careful with that stuff, right? Um, so, uh, there's also, you, it was interesting. You had this note here about nitrous oxide and hydrocarbons which is currently preferred for safety and efficacy, but we're not sure how to produce it biologically, That that's a problem. Yeah. So it may be stuck with the liquid methane methane fuel. But uh, here's the really, really – oh, wait, this is you, isn't it? No, it is me. Huh. Here's the really super cool part. So the Royal Society team ran some numbers to see how much mass we'd have to bring to Mars – If we wanted to create a methane oxygen propellant while we're at Mars. Right. So
3: So you'd have to take some fuel with you to launch from Earth. Yeah, we couldn't just
4: automatically get there with, you know, fuel free.
3: Right. But the the idea is either in transit or once you land on Mars, you set up a fuel production factory that consists of these microorganisms.
4: Right. The idea being what's the bare minimum amount of fuel that we could put uh, on a launch vehicle um, you know, just, just as a way of getting to Mars. And so, uh, they came up with, uh, a couple different methods. One was, um, if we just produce oxygen on Mars, so we bring everything else we need to create methane, oxygen, fuel with us but we leave the oxygen production for the when we're actually on the planet. We would need to ship 7,512 kilograms of methane to Mars in order to have enough to lift off again. Now, if we produce both oxygen and methane on Mars, we would need to ship just 3,251 kilograms of hydrogen there to fuel the production of the methane oxygen fuel while we're on the planet, which is less than half the mass of what we would need if we were only concentrating on oxygen. Now, If we went a step further and said, how about we try to produce the hydrogen on Mars as well? And the way we would do that is we would collect water from the soil of Mars. Mm -hmm. We would evaporate the water out of the soil. We would then use electrolysis to break the the molecular bonds so that you get hydrogen gas and oxygen gas. Um, And if if we use that methodology, then we could cut it down to between 2021 and 2658 kilograms. Now, remember, we started – with 7512. And that was already assuming we were going to produce oxygen on Mars. That's not even yeah. like if we were talking about just pure fuel to get there and get back without ever making fuel on Mars, you start getting into huge, huge numbers and it, it quickly becomes problematic. Yeah. So this is a really interesting idea. Uh, the you know, I don't fully understand the processes. Uh, the actual, like, lab process that you goes You mean in. you're
3: not a rocket scientist? Nor am I some sort
4: of a microorganism. rocket fuel scientist. I'm not a microbiologist either. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, both of those are true. And so well,
3: it, I think we can take them at their word for now. Unless yes. Unless we hear response by other sure. people in the community.
4: So let's go to another big thing that's part of uh, our trip and making sure that we survive, not just to get there and get back, but to survive the entire way. And that's a uh, that's some tasty yum yums,
3: well, maybe somewhat tasty, yeah uh I don't know if they qualify as yum yums, maybe maybe almost num nums
4: yeah we need some sort of sustenance however
3: some some barely edible <laughs> <laughs> somewhat nutritious food that people can keep down while they're up there, so mm mm.
4: One of the, the, the paper talks about a resupply mission to the International Space Station.
3: Yeah, they, so they say that typically more than half of a resupply mission, the cargo is food. Right. And they specified there was one recent, uh, mission they looked at, which was 59% food by weight. Yeah. And that's space food we're talking about. That's presumably mostly or totally dehydrated right. food.
4: Yeah, you would add water once. There and prepared to to eat your shrimp cocktail mush. We had a nice long discussion about shrimp cocktail. Well,
3: we're going to talk about space food in a minute.
4: (laughs) Okay, fair. I won't I won't I won't spoil it then. Uh, And this is not really practical for people who are headed to Mars where you can't get that resupply mission regularly. Like I was saying before, you need to have, uh, you know, some way of producing food because you're probably not going to be able to carry all the food you're going to need for that incredibly long mission. You know, the the eight month or so flight out to Mars, the year or more that you're going to be spending on Mars before you can take another eight month flight back. That's a long time.
3: You know, I have a question, actually, which is how much food does an astronaut need? Oh, well, And as, and I wonder how that compares to what you need on Earth. Because an astronaut, you know, they have to exercise constantly sure. in order to prevent uh, too much decay of the bones and muscles. Yeah. Uh, and, and how does that factor into how many calories they need?
4: Well, I can tell you that they eat about 1.83 kilograms of food per day. Each person does. Uh, I don't know the caloric value of that 1.83 kilograms. Um, I don't know, like...
3: It's just straight up pork dripping. <laughs>
4: yeah. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's, it's just pork rinds, just bags and bags of pork rinds up on the ISS.
3: No, like we were saying, I think most of that is going to be dehydrated packaged food that's shipped up. It, you know, it's been designed by the the chefs at NASA.
4: Now, I didn't, I I don't know for a fact if the 1.83 kilograms of food per person per day is based on the dehydrated amount or the quote unquote wet food, mm. um, because they do talk about the difference between dehydrated and wet in the paper. Because you know you can ship stuff up dry, add water to it to make the wet food, uh, or you could have it all be wet food to begin with, which adds mass obviously because you've got water there.
3: You know the term wet food makes me think of the canned like dog, cat, dog and or cat, cat food. variety. Yeah.
4: So if we wanted to go to Mars <laughs> – so this this is how much we would need to take with us for uh, an entire trip, which includes flying out there, staying on the planet, and then coming back. We need to ship 10,058 kilograms of food to last the whole trip. That's based on six astronauts. Um and that's the conservative estimate. Right. So according to the that's paper. That's
3: no, no midnight snacks.
4: No, no midnight snacking. Uh, according to the paper, about 5,861 kilograms of, quote, vegetarian wet food, end quote, could come from local crops. Hmm. Well, So I, I imagine this would be similar to the approach that the Mars One colony proposes, which is. They want to use hydroponic farming techniques to grow food crops on the surface of Mars. Okay, or, that makes sense. Really, it's probably under the surface of Mars because it's probably in underground greenhouses, because uh, there are radiation issues if you are on the surface. Um, so, according to the paper, yeah, we would still have to bring more than four thousand kilograms with us in order to uh, to have the entire trip. Uh, accounted for because you you know you need to have enough food to get there. Now once you're there you could start growing food and use that to supplement it. So they said that this could also come from a different source, not just local crops. If you didn't want to go the hydroponic crop route, you could grow Arthrospira platensis and Arthrospira maxima which together form Voltron. Uh no, actually <laughs> they they become spirulina. Now have you ever heard of spirulina? And uh, not before today. So spirulina, actually, I had heard of this, but I didn't know much about it. Um, it's often sold as a food supplement. Mm-hmm. It's specifically sold to vegetarians as a food supplement because it is, uh, it's got a lot of, um, proteins in it. In fact, right. it has like all the major, uh, amino acids are involved, uh, in a, uh, in, in this. So you, you wouldn't miss out on any. So vegetarians often take this as a supplement so in case they're not getting enough protein through their other parts of their diet. Um, and it's stuff that the Aztecs used to eat. It's technically a cyanobacteria that lives in tropical lakes uh, that have happen to have a high pH level. So they need that uh, environment really to survive. Uh, and it's sold as a food supplement everywhere, also as a whole food. I mean there are people who make cakes out of this stuff. That's what the Aztecs used to do.
3: Wow.
4: And uh the only thing that really uh, I know about that is uh, something to take as a co- precautionary uh, warning is that it doesn't necessarily serve as a good source for vitamin B12, so you could suffer a vitamin B12 shortage if you didn't have some other means of supplementing this right. food.
3: Presumably, they would plan ahead and either have that in other food stores or have a supplement.
4: Yeah, because the the supplement that's often packaged with this stuff, and uh, you know, often it'll say it's it's fortified with it or whatever. A lot of that doesn't end up being biologically active when you eat, take these things. So mm-hmm. it's actually a real problem. You need to have a, a good source of B12. But uh, using this approach, the spirulina approach, the shipping mass for food would be cut down to 2,382 kilograms. Uh, and the mission would include bioreactors in which space travelers could cultivate the spirulina. So <laughs> 2,382 so you, you'd kilograms.
3: Be, you'd be cultivating the scum you need for dinner. Yes. I would, mean, we're, we're talking about cyanobacteria right yes. here. So this is uh, a.k.a. blue-green algae, yes. the scum in the ocean yep. that is responsible for all well, the lakes. But yes. Well, sure. Yeah. Well, there's cyanobacteria in the sure, ocean. But this, oh, you're this talking about this specific type yeah. of stuff is okay. from lakes. Freshwater. Yes, correct, you are.
4: So it would it would not be salty cyanobacteria scum. <laughs> it would Yeah. Uh There's no discussion about how they would augment the texture or taste of this stuff. This is purely a Could we do – could we achieve the goal of producing food using uh, synthetic biology? It's not so much a do we want to do this because ew.
3: (laughs) Right. Uh, Well, now I can see that the main advantage of this would be on a very extended journey, right? A long trip to Mars or to an asteroid or something like that. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. In fact – Not so much for the moon or something close by. Because
4: those bioreactors – have mass they take up space on your ship they have mass you have to spend fuel to launch them out there and if your trip is going to be a relatively short one as it would be for a lunar mission then uh you know you you're not going to be producing enough food to justify it would actually be cheaper to put all the food you're going to need on that launch vehicle rather than to bring the bioreactors along if it's going to be a short trip it's only when it's a long trip that starts to pay off and uh, uh, but I've had in the paper, they mentioned that you could still use this on a lunar mission specifically to test it as a proof of concept.
3: Right. Well, I think it would be very important to test something like this ahead of time, because sure. as we know from reading about the experiences of people on the ISS, food tastes different in space. Yeah, I mean the yeah. astronauts report this that you might you might taste a meal on Earth to try to figure out okay what do what menu items do I want to have available to me when I go up on the ISS, right. and you decide you like this that and the other yeah, you know Salisbury
4: I, steak is amazing exactly What's a, I want I want fifty cartons of Salisbury steak <laughs> aboard the ISS and
3: then it turns out you get up there. And some things happen to your body when you're in a microgravity environment. Suddenly, you, you, all these fluids that were originally in your legs and your feet and stuff flow up into your head. Yeah. You get sinus congestion. It's like having a really bad cold for yeah. a while. And, and even after that, supposedly that subsides somewhat after a number of weeks. But even then, there are just problems with tasting in space. Right. It's different than it is on Earth. it's a different experience you're in an environment that's saturated with recirculating strange smells and you can't uh,
4: necessarily smell the food that you're trying to eat
3: yeah it's just all out of whack basically and and so it's strange that if you've never heard this before be prepared for a surprise what do you think the most popular rehydrated meal on the iss is
4: we already mentioned it earlier in the episode it is in fact shrimp cocktail
3: That is so disgusting. I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know
4: what you're getting, where your problem is with this idea of it being (laughs) disgusting. How is this more disgusting than any other kind of dehydrated food? Because it's shrimp. I don't, I don't know. I don't I mean, get it though, dude. I mean, like, like, like sea monkeys are <laughs> dehydrated shrimp. <laughs> well, I think I think people
3: generally acknowledge, like, you know, a shrimp cocktail just doesn't sound like the best thing to dehydrate and rehydrate in space. But they love it. The astronauts yeah. can't get enough of it. And I've heard, I've heard it speculated that the reason they love it so much is that the the cocktail sauce has a horseradish kick in it and the spiciness of it sort of helps Uh, cut through it brings back the magic to your mouth and nose didn't
4: you say there was an astronaut who asked that all of his meals be that oh yeah now i can't remember what
3: the person's name
4: was but but there was was somebody
3: who who ate shrimp cocktail just continuously morning
4: noon and night shrimp cocktail (laughs) all the time
3: um but Uh,
4: uh, no i i had said and this was before we went into the the studio i had said that i imagined that he landed and never wanted shrimp cocktail ever again
3: (laughs) yeah so we'll see but anyway all of this is in service of the point that uh you definitely need to plan ahead for what things are going to taste like in space. Sure. On top of that, this isn't trivial. Taste matters in space because morale matters in space. Oh, yeah. And if your astronauts are not getting nutritious food that's at least somewhat palatable, it can be a big problem for the mission.
4: Yeah, especially one that's going to take more than a year to complete. I mean, you know, if if you're three months in and you're already feeling really depressed because, you know, the food is unpalatable to you then you know and you know that you've got more than a year of that food to look forward to that's an issue yeah Uh, but no one thing we should point out though is that the the issues that people run into in space may not in fact be the same as those that they encounter once they're on the surface of the planet
3: that that's a good point i was actually wondering about exactly that fact so obviously if you're traveling to mars a lot of this is going to be like being on the ISS. You know, you, you'll yeah. have this fluid redistribution, sure. and, and so probably it will affect the way things taste. I wonder if things, if you're on the surface of Mars in mm-hmm. a sort of buried habitat there, does your sense of taste and smell return to more like what it would have been on Earth, or is it more like what it is in space? Well,
4: I mean, you still have the Or way- is it
3: something completely different?
4: It would probably be different. I mean, I would imagine it'd be kind of similar to what you encounter in like any place where you get a lot of recirculated air. So imagine an airplane where you get a lot of recirculated air. Mm-mm. It's the same sort of thing because, you know, you're not getting any fresh air because you can't, not on Mars. However, Mars does have gravity. It's it's much greater than microgravity. You have maybe what, about a third the the strength of Earth's gravity. Uh so, you know, your fluid distribution would be More akin to what it is on Earth, so you wouldn't have necessarily the same sort of sinus issues that you would have in, in microgravity. Uh, and you would not have to worry as much about opening up a food item and not being able to, you know, really smell it because, you know, on a space, in a space environment, you have to make sure you're not emitting anything that's gonna get into, to important Equipment, right? You yeah. can't, you can't just squirt the shrimp cocktail all over the place. <laughs> you know, you're, you're just roughhousing over aboard the ISS. You can't do that. But on Mars, it sounds big of an issue. So things like the smell of food could become more of an important factor. Of course, if you're thinking, do I want to smell cyanobacteria grouped into cakes? I don't that's know a different what that, question. That
3: would smell like
4: I don't know either. I've never had it.
3: Well, anyway, the whole point is yes, you need to test this in space first. Yes, and and test it on the moon. I I think that's crucial because you can't saddle these people with disgusting grubbins for three years. Right. Or what? Two and a half. Two and a half.
0: So three yeah, years.
4: something. Like, I think. I think it's not quite two and a half. Like I, I remember. The paper talked about it being nine hundred something days, so
0: okay, all two and a half be
4: more than to
3: yeah. three years, somewhere in between in between there. there. Uh, yeah, so we've talked about medicine, we've talked about fuel, we've talked about food. There's one more big one, yeah, that I think is very important. Now, here's a good question. Sure. Let's say you're going to space and you know there's this whole range of tools and building materials you might need. Sure, but you don't know exactly how many of them you're going to need for sure. Right. Or uh or maybe you just notice that eh, some of these tools while they would be very useful when once we get to Mars are kind of unwieldy in shape and would be difficult to store on the way there. They're, mm-hmm. you know, volumetrically inconvenient. Right. Why don't you just print them in space? This is an idea that's been explored, and we've talked about it on the show before, 3D printing for space exploration. Mm -hmm. So instead of taking up all these tools and building materials, you instead take a lump sum of printing material, and then you can print the items you need once you're there. I think that makes good sense, but you can do one step even better. Right don't even take the bulk materials to begin with
4: right take some microorganisms that can convert whatever stuff happens to be on the planet you're visiting that will then convert that into the biopolymers that you need to print stuff brilliant so, i love this yeah now now this again could really cut down on the amount of launch mass you need for your mission yeah uh, and it would require the team to print out stuff that they need, and that could include things like habitats. It could include, like, it, it could include big stuff. And really, again, the team, uh, that was writing this paper was just looking into the feasibility. Like, is it possible to have a microorganism create the stuff that could potentially go into a device like a 3D printer? Mm-hmm. And they found that, yes, that is feasible. Yeah, It uh, doesn't mean that we can do it right now. It just means that there's no reason we couldn't pursue that as an option.
3: Oh, bioplastics are a huge thing. Yeah, it sure. seems totally feasible to me that you can have a microbial factory for producing the plastics you need to mm-hmm. make a, you know, slat that goes on the side of a habitat.
4: Yeah. So, again, this could really cut down not just on the, the bulk material. I mean, again, it just it creates more room for other stuff. It means that you also have a, a more self-sustaining uh, mission that is capable of handling things when, uh, the unexpected occurs. Like when something you de- had not accounted for, like a tool breaks, mm. then with this system, you would get more of whatever raw material the microorganisms needed to convert into biopolymer, then put that into the 3D printer and print yourself a new tool whenever the old one has worn out or broken. And you don't have to worry about that kind of situation uh, completely throwing the mission into jeopardy.
3: I think that's an excellent idea. And I also want to do a little aside that you might find amusing. Okay, It's a note about academic language usage in the way people write papers. Right. I, I don't want to denigrate their research. These guys are brilliant. But I kept seeing a certain phrase in this paper and I was like, what the heck is three-dimensional printing? <laughs> so so we have completely gone beyond using the actual words three-dimensional to the point where I didn't recognize what that was uh, when so I first it saw did, it. It
4: didn't register as 3D printing to you. Right. That's pretty funny. Yeah, where we gotten to the point where 3D itself means something and three-dimensional doesn't necessarily <laughs> evoke that. That is amusing. We also wanted to briefly talk about uh, another thing that we would obviously need on any space exploration mission which is oxygen uh, oh sure now the the various uh, the paper doesn't address oxygen actually. right
3: and I and I think that makes sense because it's less of a synthetic biology concern and yeah. just the fact that you might have plants or algae or you know, Things that exist already to produce breathable oxygen and habitat.
4: Mars 1 specifically was looking into creating oxygen through electrolysis again. Taking, okay. taking the water from the Martian soil and using uh, electrical current to uh, separate out the hydrogen and oxygen and then to mix in some nitrogen from the Martian uh, atmosphere. Um, right, because you don't want to breathe pure oxygen. No, no. So, yeah, exactly. You want to be able to to supply your Mission with oxygen, you know, we need it to, to breathe, but we can't carry all that with us either. But uh, usually, these systems involve things like electrolysis or, like you said, photosynthesis, some sort of um, other method to generate the oxygen we need, as opposed to just uh, you know creating a microorganism that poops air. That one's not. Uh, listed in the paper. So, if you
3: want to be more elegant, you could say it exhales
4: air. Uh, yeah, I could say that. Yeah, it's something that ex that <laughs> respirates and it breathes out oxygen and maybe breathes in carbon dioxide. I guess
3: the term is excretes. It yeah. it puts it out there.
4: So. We have a lot of different challenges here. One of those is just being able to make use of whatever the resources are at the destinations we're going to. And right,
3: big... because, I mean, this comes up in the paper. Yeah. Going to the moon and going to Mars are different in terms of the chemical elements available in, say, the soil.
4: Exactly, yeah. Martian soil and lunar regolith, uh, which is what we call the the soil on the moon. Uh, have very, various, um, oxides and, and other elements in them that you can find in one, but not the other. Mm-hmm. So you may be able to come up with a microorganism that could work really well in one environment, but not so well in the other, which is, that's problematic because normally we would say, how about we use the moon as kind of a testing grounds for a lot of this technology to make sure it works, uh, before we commit to a Martian expedition where people are going to be much further away for much longer and uh thus, their lives will literally depend upon this technology working. But if we can't really test it effectively on the moon, uh, at least not without, you know, some caveats, then that's a little that, that's challenging. Right.
3: The, the moon is at least where we should test the uh, algae cakes.
4: Y- yes. Yeah. Which, again, they point out that in the case of going to the moon would actually be less efficient than just packing all the food. Exactly eat. right. but. It, it's not a matter of efficiency; it's a matter of testing the technology. Yeah. Uh. So it is really interesting. Uh, and again, the the paper itself looks at four main components as the inputs. You know, we talked about the four outputs, the, which the are four
3: the four main chemicals that you would feed these microbes.
4: Right, right. Because the four outputs we've already talked about, drugs, biopolymers, food and fuel. Well, the inputs would be carbon dioxide, nitrogen, hydrogen and oxygen. So it is really interesting that they're looking at these four basics and then they said, all right, well, how can we take these four basic things that we can get? Either we can ship to the place we're going to or we can harvest it from that environment and how can we get these four outputs we want and uh, in some cases like i said it's going to require intermediaries mm-hmm. some some intermediate steps between the beginning and the end but how can they cut that down to the bare minimum to be as quote, quote greedy end quote as possible that's the that's the <laughs> phrase they used to say like how can we maximize these inputs to try and get as much of these outputs as we possibly can it's fascinating to me to think that the the
3: <laughs> they're they're treating these microbes like common office workers. I was going
4: to say that it, to me, it's remarkable that the success of our long-term space exploration initiatives could come down to dependence on these microorganisms. Yeah, like really, the the future of long-term space missions could be in these little, you know, the different types of bacteria and algae and things like that. Um, really interesting. It makes me less likely to sign up for a trip over to Mars because <laughs> I don't know that I want to eat algae cakes for two, three years. Somehow I feel
3: like I'd rather have algae cakes than than shrimp cocktail in space. But maybe you're, I'd change my tune once I got my fluids redistributed. You're
4: bonkers, man. I don't know what it is about the the dehydrated shrimp cocktail. That you, what we need to do is we need to get some. We need to get a pack of dehydrated shrimp cocktail as used in space missions and do a taste test.
3: Uh NASA kitchen if you're listening. Here we are. I mean, Send I've, a how stuff works. Yeah. Care yeah. of the bald guy.
4: Yeah, that that's me. I'm the bald guy. Yeah, absolutely. I would I would try it in a heartbeat. I would wouldn't.
3: I'll I'll try it with you. <laughs>
4: okay. All right, so that you got at least two of the three hosts. We might be able to get Lauren in on this. I don't know. Lauren Lauren uh there's certain foods that don't agree with Lauren. So I don't I don't want to speak for her but we will at least offer her a spoonful of dehydrated reconstituted shrimp cocktail <laughs> that we have probably rehydrated in some <laughs> way i'll uh, i'll try it i've i've eaten worse stuff for, i believe for, you okay can it, can it
3: with the bravado <laughs> okay. i'll take you at your word all
4: right well at any rate i think this wraps up our discussion about synthetic biology and space travel and how it could be a really integral part of how we get around and how we uh, survive on these missions. Yeah,
3: I thought this paper was fascinating and if you're interested in reading all of the technical details in, in full the text is available online, just yeah. look it up.
4: Yeah, it uh it took me three or four reading sessions to get all the way through it because there's a lot to synthesize. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a lot of information and a lot of uh, a lot of, of chemistry that um you know, I I frankly had to take time to really understand because it was well beyond my my poor recollection of chemistry from my school days, but very fascinating stuff. And guys, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Forward Thinking, maybe you've got a topic that's been, um, you know, just eating at you and you want us to cover it, let us know. Send us an email. Our address is at fwthinkingathowstuffworks.com or drop us a line on Google+, Plus, Twitter, or Facebook. At Google+, Plus and Twitter, we are FWThinking. And just search for FWThinking in Facebook search bar. We'll pop right up. Give us a message. Let us know what you want to hear. And we look forward to talking to you again really soon.
1: For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places.
0: It's brand new. Season 2.